Howdy gamers, it's Leighton here from Leighton Night, the podcast that you're currently listening to in case you accidentally stumbled upon this, in which case I am sorry, but just wanted to let you know that there is a video version of this episode that is up on our Patreon for all tiers. So if you want to join us over there, depending on the tier, you can get all sorts of cool benefits. We do mini-sodes every week. We do some fun videos. Uh, you get access to our fan discord and overall it's a really lovely time and we would love to have you there. So without any further ado, here is the audio version of this episode. So if you want to do the video version, you can go to patreon.com slash late night or not it's really whatever floats your boat. Anyway, episode. Guys, I just had something devastating happen to me. I had a lemon that I was going to say at the end of the show, but I'm going to say my new lemon right now because I was like, all right, therapy just ended. I'm going to go make coffee, go to make coffee, check my kitchen sink because I've had an ant problem for like months. I'm like, holy shit, the ants are gone. I finally got them. They fell for my trap. I open up my coffee maker and all the ants start pouring out of the reservoir. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Terrible. So that's some horror movie shit. Why are they in there? There's nothing for them there. Little bits of water? Yeah, they were going for the water. But thank God I noticed that because otherwise I would have had a hot cup of ant. (laughs) I had the same moment when we had an ant problem and I was like, oh, they disappeared. That's great. Let me just go empty the dishwasher. I was like, oh, you're just going to hang out in here now, you jerks? Like You're going to find a new place? Killing me. Yeah. If I can't find all of them, I just like do a little... (sighs) like blow and then they all lose their shit and turn into a conga line going back into the hole in the outlet. Those bastards. We've had periodic like major ant problems and we also have spiders all the time, all the time. And at one point I was in the bathroom and I was brushing my teeth and I was so exhausted of all of the ants and they were in the bathroom. I just like swept a line of them off the counter (laughs) in the bathroom and at the baseboard, there was a spider web, and they all just went plink, 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 plink into the spider web. <laughs> into the spider web. <laughs> and the spider was just like, whoa. <laughs> so it immediately got Hell to yeah. work. Yeah. And you just sang the circle of life. Yep. <laughs> Do you guys have black widows? We have so many black widows. Not at this house, the other house we had them. But at the same time, I don't know anyone that's actually ever been bitten by a black widow. Like I never hear about anyone getting bitten, but we see them all over. And we have a seven-year-old who's fucking running around our backyard all the time, reaching into shit. No one I know has ever gotten bit. Speaking of backyard, yesterday I looked out my window that I'm looking at right now and I made eye contact with a coyote. Really? In your backyard? Yeah, wander around in my backyard. <laughs> and I watched him for like two minutes, just kind of wander around. He wandered in a corner and then I think the dog next door barked and he just bolted and jumped over the fence. Wow. And then this morning, at like six in the morning, my kid was like, is that a coyote outside? And we went outside. It sounded like they were tearing each other apart. Like, oh, yeah, just like (laughs) (laughs) it was a wild ride. I was driving Audrey to school. It was like actually a year ago or so, I guess more than that. And I was like, is that a wolf? I just driving to the middle of a big street, just big fucking wolf looking thing. And I realized it was just a gigantic coyote. And they're just wandering around in the streets at 7 a.m. It's so odd. Ours aren't that big. They're skinny. 
and look like cartoon coyotes. I mean, they're what, like a foot and a half long and then have a really long tail? Yeah. Right? Something like that? Yeah. You know they ain't dogs. Right. And they eat cats. That's the dangerous part. And a small dog they might take apart. But um, here's the Black Widow I'm excited about. I haven't read it yet, but there's a book I heard about that I have in my queue on Libby, the Uh public uh, library audio app. And it's called Black Widow. I'm going to blow the title, but it's a journey through grief for people who don't like books with the word journey in the title. (laughs) And I heard about it on NPR and I downloaded it. I read a lot of grief books in the last couple of years, but this one was a black woman whose husband died. So she's a black widow, black widow. (laughs) But I was like, uh, this woman's attitude is fucking great. I want to read her book. Yeah. I love the title. Yeah. In terms of grief books that you've read, what are like up there in terms of ones that were most helpful for you? I guess that's a heavy thing to start the podcast. It's like, hey, coyotes, uh, grief. It's a natural connection. <laughs> a lot of them are helpful, but like not my favorite books. But the one I'll give a shout out to that I thought was really great was called The Dead Moms Club that Kate Spencer wrote, who is a sort of a friend of ours uh, from the comedy world. Mm-hmm. And I was very moving and a lot to relate to. And then there's another one called Opening Our Hearts, Transforming Our Losses. It's so full of insight that I like will read it a couple pages at a time. And that's sort of like enough to be like, "Ah, I'm going to sit with what I just got from that for a while. Well, the title almost sounds like a fake grief book. Like it just sounds like a kind of amalgamation of the words that you would imagine in a grief book. Can we see that cover again? The cover looked kind of like an amalgamation of what you would imagine. It looks a little self-publishy. I thought so too. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> a little bit. A lot of self-help in general, for want of a better categorization, has a vibe of like, ugh. Totally. The more specific that you get with the self-help, where it's like, oh, this is a very, very specific situation, uh, the the worse the covers get. And then you look at your Kindle library and you're like, ugh. Why can't this just be like wolf porn? I feel like that would at least have better (laughs) covers. That's why Black Widow was so appealing, because I was like, to add a little sense of humor to it. I don't remember what book it was that I think my wife shared with you, but it's like every time she would read something, she would always start off the sentence talking to me about it like, "Ah, I mean... This is kind of corny, but, and then it would be some great insight, but she's done it like 10, 15 times. And I was just like, yeah, I know. It's like part of the genre. I don't read a lot of self-help, but every time I do, my first instinct is like, and who the fuck are you? Yeah. You know, it's like, what are your credentials to tell me that? Like, I don't know you. Right. (laughs) Which is not a great place to be coming from when you're trying to be open to help. If you read ones that are like from the 80s, for example, I read Alice Miller's drama of The Gifted Child like semi-recently, which, you know, people praise that book very highly. And like within the first few pages, it's like the only women who get nipple piercings are ones who are sexually abused as children. I was like, whoa, 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 (laughs) hold up. Is that how you're going to establish your credibility by just making that big old nipple blanket statement? There's the two John Cleese books with his therapist. So he's got one that's uh, life and how to deal with it. And the other one's called like family and how to deal with it. And they are great. There's some like very good insight in there. It's like his like group therapy leader. But they were also written in like the 70s into the 80s. 
like at one part in the middle of one of them, it feels like the therapist just like, and of course, all homosexuals are homosexual because they hung out with their mothers a lot. Um, moving on. And you're just like, <laughs> yeah. okay, wait, hold on. I have 400 more pages. And now I'm kind of questioning everything you just said. Uh, speaking of questioning everything you said, sometimes I get worried about a self-helpy therapy book if the source is odd it is in the like who the hell are you but like i remember seeing in like amazon prime they give you some books and it kept recommending adult children of emotionally immature parents and Mm -hmm. my gut reaction was just like this can't be a good book yeah like it's the 10 therapy books you're giving me an option to and then i read it and i was like oh well that changed my life a little bit same experience and i was like oh okay that's my mother that's my dad and i'm reading this while we're on a family vacation <laughs> like i'm like okay i've got insight now and like thanks amazon prime i guess i've given so many people that book <laughs> it's a great book right it seems like it'll just be semi-pop yeah like you know therapy but it really was like no no these four or five different types do kind of hit really well. The way that they break down like internalizing responses versus externalizing responses, it's immediately like, whoa, this blew this shit wide open for me. Yeah. But the Amazon Prime thing, I mean, I have the same response to literally anything in Oprah's book club where it just kind of feels middle brow out of the gate. And part of that, I think, is the, well, if it's that popular, it can't be any good. Sure. You know, which is uh, the gut reaction we all probably have. Yes. Unless it's running for Senate. And then right. it's very smart. Uh, <laughs> then I'm on board with all of their beliefs. <laughs> but yeah, it parted with that book was like, if it's popular enough to get into Amazon Prime, because that's supposed to be a way to sell you by the bigger subscription thing where you get thousands of books. Then I was like, oh, maybe we just all have emotionally immature parents from that age. Sorry. <laughs> like, yeah. Maybe it's popular <laughs> for a reason. Like, and the reason is it's really good and helpful. (laughs) And that goes along even with self-help and grief books, any sort of those types of books where it's just like, even if it's cheesy, you'll still be like, yeah, but that's a truth. It's like something I've heard my therapist say. And then I'm like, well, if these 10 professionals I've talked to have all said some variation on it, it's just (laughs) this is ensconced in a possible self-publishing style cover yeah yeah it still like might work like it still might be a good idea if you start reading it and you recognize like very odd punctuation and like way too many commas that's when to steer clear but (laughs) it's like if i can sit there like years and years ago and read a david ike book and be like, this is a 5,000-page book about the lizards from the fourth dimension manipulating bloodlines, and every other word is a typo. Or the Halloween 5 movie novelization that I was very excited to get, even though I don't love Halloween 5. The biggest problem is the way it's laid out is a little self-publishing where instead of one dash, there's two dashes every time. <laughs> Just like the typesetting is really hard to read. And I'm like, well, I can't finish this book. (laughs) You know, they do a lot of re-releases of old classics where it's like, here's a beautiful new cover. I want to see that where it's beautiful old classics with a self-help, self-published style cover with just like, here's the stock image, here's the bad (laughs) typesetting for like Moby Dick, like a stock photo of a whale. Yes, I would buy Wuthering Heights. (laughs) Shutterstock 
like watermark <laughs> over it that they forgot to take out. <laughs> I remember a sketch team in New York. I don't remember who it was, but do you remember uh, J.D. Salinger had a book of stories called Nine Stories, I think it was called? Yeah, Nine Stories, that's right. And it has a very distinct cover. It's just text and in the bottom right-hand corner is the little rainbow and their flyer for their show was like nine sketches and it was just a blank with text and a little rainbow in the corner that's great and i was like sweet move yeah salinger like really got some great covers i mean i feel like the catcher in the rye cover is one of the greats of all time immediately recognizable the fact that it's been slapped on 20 million tote bags over the past however many years is any indication right i feel like i think he was an asshole like and not yes, a good 100 percent. it would be like me reading into the wilds where I'd be like, I have no sympathy for it. Like fucking get it together. <laughs> I would just be like, I don't know, man, you're kind of just being a jerk. Like go to therapy for two seconds. Even when you're a kid, he's annoying, but you're also annoying. So you can identify with it. Yes. I don't know about you guys, but every time I think of the book, you know, it's all about his like perspective on the world and how it's like, it's changed. And now he feels like an outsider in his own life. And then the I always think about him being, molested. So therefore, I always feel a sense of sympathy because it's like, oh, we're all damaged. And this person who's like struggling to figure out his life and make sense of it and can't really articulate it in more than teenage terms. And he uses the same words over and over because he just struggles to express himself. That transition out of adolescence, along with like the hardship of what life's like. Wait, is that a chapter in The Catcher in the Rye? Mm hmm. I mean, that's the problem. If I haven't read it since my 13, it's like I'm having the gut reaction to Catcher in the Rye. Like, I might as well be someone quoting 1984. And I'm like, I think you've read one chapter. I'm not sure you've actually read it. Or like you found the one George Carlin quote that cut out the rest of his <laughs> entire thing. Like, I just did that with that book. But hearing that, I'm like, OK, yeah, I probably pulled back. Versus my Into the Wild rant that I always feel like I go on where I'm just like, I don't know. Every time I read it, I'm just like. Again, you're kind of just being a shitball, man. <laughs> like, get it together. Into the Wild is a similar thing. Like, that's why that I like Into the Wild. So John Krakauer, the Into Thin Air guy, wrote a book about a kid who was 20, 21, and he went and tried to live, like, off the land, quote unquote, in Alaska. But he was, like, really isolated in the woods on his own. And he had, like, a backpack with a sack of rice. And he just was sort of like, I could self-sustain in the row in Emerson or whatever. It's nonfiction. Yeah. So Krakauer is just telling the story about this kid. Sean Penn made it into a movie. He was like an upper middle class kid. He left college. Yeah, exactly. He was like a track student at like Yale or something. And the reason I like it is Krakauer like reflects on his own life as a 20 something, as a dude who was like, I could do this kind of thing. And he tells a story about, again, like just these vivid chapters of the book. He tells a story about going climbing one time on his own. And he brought like just enough food for a, two days or something. And he brought a joint and he lit the joint and he dropped the ember off the joint and lit his tent on fire. <laughs> so then he had no tent. Just was like the foolhardiness of being a 20-something, of thinking you can do anything Mm -hmm. And that you're an idealist and you can survive by living off nothing but a sack of rice. So he's relating to what it's like to have that kind of hubris as a 20 something person. Therefore, I like read the book and I was like, yeah, I totally understand. And I'm sympathetic to this kid. You know, he's like still working it out. And he went operating under like grand delusions, ended up dying. And that to me is like, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. I think I need to re 
read it, I know my gut reaction with it is partly because I'm just like, eh, he reminds me of some like fucking trust fund crust punk kid. Sure. Like I had to deal with in my twenties. And even with the JD Salinger, like I clearly forgot like about that thing to actually make that character empathetic. But in my mind, I picture in Catcher the confidence of his opinions. And maybe even that is a bit of like, I don't think I ever had that much confidence in my opinions. I get that air, but like I had enough self-loathing always <laughs> yeah. to give me a layer of just like, yeah, I think you might also be wrong with your confident opinion on this hardcore band, whatever it is, Jeff. Yeah. But the self-confidence in that book like clearly stems from self-loathing. A lot of people who are very, 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 very perhaps overly confident, it's just like I am putting layers on top of the self-loathing so nobody else catches this, but it becomes really obvious. I'm not trying to say that all confident people hate themselves. That's not the point. No, more confident people should hate themselves more. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you. I've found it interesting, too, to go back and watch stuff from when we were kids, especially movies that have teenagers and adults, and the adults are, you know, the oppositional force. And it is 100% true. And I'm thinking, like, of, for example, Ferris Bueller, where now I kind of relate to the principal. Ferris sucks. Like, that kid's annoying. And the principal is just trying to get these kids in school. And granted, that guy also has some serious problems. But I can see his point of view now. That character or Jeffrey Jones? Well, both, of course. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he's manipulating Cameron nonstop. Poor, poor Cameron. Cameron is going to get abused by his father when his father gets home. Like mm-hmm. for that car being fucked up. And he's like, I'll take it. And it's like, no, don't take it. You guys aren't going to be friends after this year. When you graduate, your friendship is done. I think Ferris is a prick. <laughs> yes, totally. And just in general, when you have these adults now, you know, I'm 46. I have a seven-year-old. I'm like, please, kid, just do the fucking thing I told you to do. Just come on. I have enough going on. Just do the thing. And when you come at these movies with built-in dad exasperation, yeah. oh man, those adults seem a lot more relatable. I mean, I say this as a man who I'm not positive I've ever really watched Home Alone all the way through, but when that uncle says, look what you did, you little jerk, I'm like, yeah, look what you did, you little jerk. Like, you're being really frustrating. Like, listen to what totally. is going on in your family. <laughs> I know you're a child, but you also have to be a listening human being and like how this family dynamic works yeah yeah being a frustrated dad is definitely a a new outlook (laughs) on a lot of things i mean the next chapter of home alone home alone 2 aside is Catherine o'hara being like we're gonna make some changes we're gonna totally have a different family we're not gonna do like this and then they do the changes and she shows up for her children in a different way and then all that starts to deteriorate because life is too hard to maintain new things. And I'm going to start meditating every day, and I will actually brush my teeth (laughs) twice a day. And (laughs) yeah, Kevin turns out to be who he was meant to be, which is the child of uh, emotionally immature parents. (laughs) And then he'll go on Amazon Prime. It'll be like, oh, what's this stupid looking book? Wait a second. (laughs) Honestly, he ends up becoming a comedian or he ends up becoming an introverted graphic designer or whatever. He's a Fox News pundit. It's weird, Nate. It's a real <laughs> bummer. <laughs> He's on Red Eye, though. He's kind of cool. Like, he kind of knows some funky music. But <laughs> Right. But Andy has this built-in safety net. Every time you watch those John Hughes movies now, at least every time I watch them, I'm like, how much does that house cost? Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Like, there are these palaces in the suburbs of Chicago 
which are probably now $4 million homes, if not more. Yeah. And the thing that at the time read to me as, you know, nicer than the life I had, but not like crazy nicer now to me seems almost unobtainably fancy. Yeah. I think you got to move to Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> We've had some friends move to Chicago and their reaction is consistent, which is it's like the last city where the middle class still exists. Like really? you can buy a house there for $300,000. I mean, of course you can in Minneapolis or St. Louis, you know, like there are plenty of other cities. Yeah. I mean, the thing to me with John Hughes too is like, I like never really completely connected him until those documentaries and that David Wayne movie about the lampoon Mm -hmm. and like connected that he was like in that world. Yeah. And I just kind of now like find that world so much of a bummer, (laughs) the national lampoon world where I'm like half of it is so funny. And then half of it really is just like, no, I was really racist and misogynistic and elitist then. And very self-centered. You know, it's not the genius asshole kind of way. It's just the asshole. Yeah. And it's like, you guys don't deserve to be that into yourselves. And also, yes, you're probably all rich and calm down. Yeah. PJ O'Rourke, chill. (laughs) It's like even like a Mike McDonald when you like hear about his writing, like he's like, you know, the madman of SNL. And I'm like, or he could have been less of a jerk sometimes too. Right. Like it sounds like in the stories. I always say I will give in that documentary about the lampoon. It was like, oh, that's what's going on with Chevy Chase. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the moment when he's like a human being for three seconds and he's just like, I miss my best friend. Yeah. We found finally the insight. What's the documentary that you're talking about? Drunk, Stoned and Stupid. I think is what it was called. It was like the National Lampoon story. And then they had that like dramatized version that David Wayne did where like Will Forte was Doug Kenny, who was like the head editor and then wrote Caddyshack. A few dollars stupid gesture. That's it. Yeah, something like that. I've watched the documentary a bunch because it's like one of those like I will like watch if it shows up on like Pluto just to re-stick in my brain where I'm like, all right, the cover with the dog with the gun to its head that says buy this magazine or we'll kill this dog is still kind of a funny <laughs> joke to me. And then totally. everything in those pages is kind of a bummer. I don't think I've ever read a full issue. It doesn't seem interesting to me. As you say, it's almost guaranteed to be dated and not in a fun way. Yeah. You know what I did love in high school? So Lampoon had a few books. One was called Media Gate. And one was called A Harvard Education in a Book, Mm -hmm. which remain some of the funniest like comedy books, like in the humor section of Barnes and Noble that I've read. Actually lent Harvard Education in a Book to a friend 20 years ago and never got it back. So (laughs) I haven't read it in a long time. But I remember Mediagate, that kind of thing where, you know, you just have little quotes from it that just stay in your head for the rest of your life, partly because you read it when you were a teenager. But there are a couple of great lampoon book books i'm like compartmentalizing like okay i'm sure there are there's just too much content it's like the idea of going and being like i'm gonna read every mad magazine we have a friend ramsey i was in a sketch class with ramsey okay i was in uh sketch 201 with him so ramsey's like a very funny man but also an archivist he writes like archive comedy yeah like articles so he's the person who will be like oh you want every issue of army man Like, I took it, 
and scanned it and made it look better. And I'll send it all to you in a PDF. And I'll be like, yeah. I want the Army Man PDF, please. I will send it to you. Thank you. I was trying to find more of them because there's just a Tumblr that's posted like still images. I think he took from those and then cleaned them up in Photoshop. (laughs) Like he's very precise like that. But even that is something that's like, yeah, finally got Army Man. Can't wait to flip through it now and then or like, I'm going to download every episode of Jam but the BBC <laughs> audio radio show and all of the Mighty Boosh and then they'll sit on my hard drive and I need to erase files because they're all taking up so much space before we started I was talking about that hard drive that I have that's four terabytes and I use as a backup but also as piles of movies even that has like so much stuff Nate gave me where he's like, oh, do you want all these master classes? You want all these like Pasolini movies? Do you want all these Cassavetti <laughs> movies? And I'm like, of course I do. Put those on there. I will never open any of them. Like every yeah, once in a while. I have the same dedicated hard drive. <laughs> That's the thing. Then I'm like, or I could see if Let It Ride starring Richard Dreyfus is streaming yeah. or Moon Over Parador. And then it is. And then I'll watch that instead. <laughs> and which is the right choice? Hey, Home for the Holidays was surprisingly more funny than I even remembered. It's a good movie. (laughs) (laughs) Jodie Foster one? Jodie Foster directed. Why I rewatched it, W.D. Richter, who wrote it, wrote Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And Big Trouble in Little China, right? Buckaroo Banzai and Big Trouble in Little China, and then wrote Home for the Holidays. And you can kind of see it in the rhythm of the dialogue. Is Home for the Holidays, is that the Holly Hunter Yes, yeah. Holly Hunter and Robert Downey. Right. It was like his like return to acting. Mm-hmm. And he was like having fun. I feel like one of the burdens of having so much like unwatched stuff on a hard drive or you're just like, I should watch this show and I should watch this thing. I will willingly ignore all of that and just rewatch the same things over and over because my brain is like too saturated and I cannot consume new content. And so it just mm-hmm. becomes like all of these neglected things that everyone's begging me to watch. I'm like, yeah. no, I'm not going to. I am instead going to rewatch True Detective season one for like the eighth time. <laughs> Who gives a shit? Let's go. I relate. And a part of it is, for me is I need that specific vibration. Like I need it to calm down or to turn my brain off. And it's soothing. It's especially why I'm not hitting play on like a Pasolini or a Jardowski or something where I'm like, (laughs) I need to really actively watch. And I know that I'm not going to be able to do that with this. It's the same with like any number of documentaries that I'm not watching because I need to actively participate. And what I want to do is just go back to the thing that I know is going to scratch the itch and also help me like chill, which is obviously a lot of the way we engage with entertainment and media. So it's the same reason, you know, a new album will come out and I'll be like, I got to make time to listen to this top to bottom. Mm -hmm. But then I'll be like, yeah, but I'm just going to go back and listen to my, my number one on (laughs) Spotify playlist thing came out. And my number one was PJ Harvey. And I was like, (laughs) of course, really? (laughs) Exactly. Cause I rediscovered her this year. Cause I was like, man, this is scratching an itch that I needed to have scratched. So I won't necessarily get to the new album because I'll be like, I just needed perfect from now on one more time because that was the mood, you know? Yeah. My top two Spotify genres were classic rock and smooth jazz. And I looked at it and I was like, I hate myself. (laughs) It just made me feel like a bad guy. Dude, 
It's what you're describing, though. Both of those stations or that genre are both like, let's chill, high vibration genres. They're meant to be like, oh, that's classic rock, man. It's nostalgic. It's easy. And yep. smooth jazz is like, I'm at the garden and home store, man. Totally. <laughs> There's a new Kenny G documentary coming out this oh, week. I'll watch it the minute it's out. Oh, dude. <laughs> Me too. So the director, Penny Lane, she was just on Sharpling's best show last week. Uh -huh. And he had this very long interview with her. And I was like, I have to see this movie. I just recorded a smooth jazz album. And so I've been listening to nothing but smooth jazz for like the last essentially year and more. So the thing I didn't realize about smooth jazz was that it was an invention of marketing, basically, because they had this stuff when Kenny G, around the time he really started, he was putting this stuff out and they were like, what the fuck is this? Like, what genre is this? And so they just invented out of whole cloth this genre of smooth jazz, which then went on to become its own thing. But I'm so excited about this. I definitely would like a list of what smooth jazz you've been listening to the past year, because that will end up being like a rabbit hole. I'll go down to and see what Venn diagram overlap is with 80s new age. Right. Some ambient stuff that has gone into smooth jazzy stuff. Yes. City pop stuff. And also, uh, do you listen to any Spago rock? stuff not that much no that's like my buddy mike pace like kind of invented that term because he like made it up and then like this other guy kind of wrote a thing about but i was amazed that wasn't on there more yeah. was like more spaga rock stuff to the point where my wife was like we cannot keep listening to philip well, bailey's chinese wall anymore my wife said the same thing about soprano saxophonist walter beasley oh <laughs> she's like please brian let's put something else on for once but A, the seven-year-old started to like it. And B, the other thing, so with smooth jazz specifically, the thing that happened to me was I absolutely hit this inflection point where I can't tell the difference between what's good and what's bad Yes, anymore. Because part of what's good is being bad. And there's this kind of pivot in the middle. And you can tell if it's incompetent, but that's not what I'm talking about. The whole genre of smooth jazz relies on nothing but extreme technical competence. Like everyone who's doing it is an insane player. The production is like crystal clear. It's just the best, but everybody has bad taste. And that's exactly the point where you can't tell what's good and what's bad anymore. Any of these things, it's not like that old, did the Senator say that about pornography that it was just like, I can't explain you know it, it to you, you but it? I know it yeah. is when you see it. Like it's the same as like, what's good ambient music because yes arguably it all sounds the same and that's kind of the point and a lot yeah. of it does just sound like what's playing in the background at a massage but also sometimes i'll be like what exactly are we playing i can't pay attention to this massage because i actually want this record and to own it yes 100 <laughs> it's like distracting i've gotten a massage and been like is this an instrumental version of hands to heaven <laughs> <laughs> Like, I'll be like, I think it is. And then I'll go out and I'll say to my partner, like, was that Hands to Heaven? Was that Spando Ballet? Who was that? <laughs> I always like want a massage and I never really wanted to pay for one. And then my father-in-law, we're like in Vegas for some award or whatever he's getting. And he was like, I'm getting you a massage. So the guy that came in had a faux hawk. And immediately I was just like, oh, we're in Vegas. This is like a Guy Fieri casino, basically. And the entire time I really couldn't pay attention because I would be like sitting there and I'd hear like saxophone, light saxophones, like burr, 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 burr. and I was like, what is that? 
And all of a sudden I was like, wait, is that Lincoln Park? Is this like a <laughs> like a satellite jazz version of Lincoln Park? And then it would go into like a orchestral version of a Metallica song. It was only yeah. metal and new metal, but through an ambient lens. And they would do like the vocals with horns. Mm-hmm. So like oh I'm God. sitting there singing. I've tried so hard. <laughs> While this guy with a faux hawk's like, did the shit move that no massage guy should do? He was like, oh, you're a writer, man. What do you write? Comedy. Oh, what kind of comedy? Like having a long conversation about Saturday Night Live with me. <laughs> Shortly after I moved here, I was like, all right, I'm going to like take care of myself and I'm going to get like regular massages. So I signed up for like the Massage Envy monthly like subscription or whatever it is, but also being life and LA and whatever, I never went. And so at some point I was like, okay, I'm, I'm spending whatever it was 70 bucks a month or something for these massages. I was like, I'm going to cancel this. And they said, okay, well you're canceling it, but you have all these credits and they expire in a month. And I hate leaving these things unspent. So in a month I got like 15 massages. I was in there <laughs> A couple of weeks, three times a week, just to use these things up because they would just go away after a month. Hold on. They fucking expire? <laughs> oh, no. If you have the subscription, they don't expire. But when you cancel the subscription, then the clock starts ticking. I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I'm going to have to do this shit. My most extreme version of this, what song is that, is I went to a certain uh, week-long intensive therapy retreat <coughs> cult that will remain nameless, (laughs) that is very heavy on three-hour-long meditations where they're guiding you through things. By, like, day three, I was like, I could have gone to Iceland with this money? Mm. And you're sitting here, and you're telling me to think about my spiritual self? And I have to say, Iceland is an amazing place. But go on, yes, go on. (laughs) Really, I, I should have gone to Iceland. But I was already really down on it, and... You can't have caffeine. You can't bring books. You, they take away your phone and your technology and everything. And so the only music you hear all week is the same soft pan flute. And it got to oh. a point where we were in the middle of one of these things where, like, you're supposed to be crying or whatever. And I sit there and I'm like, they're playing the fucking American Beauty soundtrack. They're straight up <laughs> just playing the American Beauty soundtrack, <laughs> which I already hate, but especially... In that context, I was just like, how am I supposed to focus on this? I'm just thinking about Kevin Spacey being a freak. And a plastic bag flew through the room and you got your first tear, finally, because you got life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a rough one. I would be doing the same of like sitting there, like going through the litany of why I don't like that movie and what I yes. think my problems are in culture. Is that the one? It's like very marimba heavy. Yes. Oh, fuck yes, it is. And they did not stop playing it through the rest of the week. It was so miserable. I mean. Wow. You had me a pan flute at the beginning because I've definitely bought a couple Zamfir records hoping to find some gems. (laughs) I mean, you know, the like default iPhone ringtone, like the bum, 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 bum. That's the American Beauty soundtrack. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what it is. Yes. (laughs) Who did the score? I think it's Thomas Newman. Okay. I can't hear it in my head, but as soon as you said marimbas, I thought of uh, Badlands. Terrence Malick? Terrence Malick. Isn't there a lot of that? Ding, 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 ding. Okay, well, that's a great story I brought up. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Terrence Malick, the pain in the ass I am, I have multiple photos in multiple countries 
of me running my hands over wheat. <laughs> Just because anytime I'm in that situation, that's where I go. I'm not sitting there being like, oh, we're in the English countryside. I'm like, give me a Malik photo, babe. Like, I want to have another one of me understanding the earth. <laughs> give me one of your white t-shirts so it's real tight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you wear my Cannibal Corp shirt, and then I'll take your very white shirts. Also thinking of my wife, it's like, I think often about how lenient my wife is on every aspect of my life like in everything that I listen to even the fact like going to that Spotify that like I got my results and I was like I do not let my kid use the Spotify it was like top five were then Lizzie Genesis Aphex Twin because that's one song we play when he goes to bed Mm -hmm. uh Peter Gabriel and Roxy Music uh, and then black metal were all the top five songs and Fright and Rabbit, I Wish I Was Sober. So anytime, though, when my wife puts her foot down, I'm like, whoa, what is going on with this song? <laughs> There's like a handful and one of them was Against All Odds by Phil Collins. Oh, <laughs> Genesis is my favorite band. She has to listen to every offshoot of Genesis. And that was one where she's just like, can we just not? Can it just not happen? Same with that. She came out from tucking my kid in. And I had on the screen on the Roku, that documentary that just came out about the third wave of ska. Oh, <laughs> she oh just immediately just went, please not tonight. <laughs> like You're not going to make me do that. I was like, no, 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 no. My wife declared a moratorium on the Rippingtons recently. <laughs> oh, the, the Rippingtons cat got to her. Holy shit. Do you guys know the Rippingtons cat? No. <laughs> Google image search at some point, the Rippingtons cat. So the Rippingtons are a, it's like a 90s, 2000s, very well produced smooth jazz band. My favorite part, (laughs) as I may have discussed in the show, is it's basically one guy and then a rotating cast of characters. So every Rippingtons album says the Rippingtons featuring Russ Freeman. (laughs) And you guys will appreciate this. Every time I see, I think of Rob Torfelson's Armada featuring Herman (laughs) Menderchuk. And they have this cat which is so off-putting to me, which has become the Rippingtons logo, which is a very stylized, like 90s looking cat, cool cat with the sunglasses. And maybe it's on a surfboard or maybe it's like hiking through Machu Picchu or something like that. There's a lot of stuff happening with this cat. It's very Key West art gallery. Yes, very, (laughs) very. And this is now like the fifth episode we've talked about the Rippingtons cat on. (laughs) So glad. It's just bad. And we feel for you and how much you have to deal with. <laughs> the long suffering. This freaking year he's been putting you through, too. <laughs> you don't even know. But I will say some of those Rippingtons tracks are pretty great. I'm sure. I believe it. They're very, uh, you know, late 80s sitcom opening credits kind of vibe. That's very fun. Did you guys feel like that the verbiage of the Spotify Unwrapped was like really passive aggressive this year? It was off-putting. Yes. It's off-putting anyway, but it's just like, even if you just listen to whale sounds, that's okay. It's like, fuck you. You're going to tell me that my number one artist is Radiohead. Yes, I get it. I'm depressed. Fuck off. Spotify. <laughs> well, and they made you wait for it because it loaded in this kind of Instagram story-friendly version, and you had to wait for the thing to load until it hit you with the answer. I just want right. to see the answer. Right. Yeah. And I got worried. I was like, wait, is the language all semi-depressing it's like your movie is a soundtrack and you're the hero which was also frustrating because the past couple years i feel like a lot of my writing is about how like that's the problem of humanity is that we all think we're a hero 
in the story, but none of us are. We're just nothing in existence. Then like it was like, and in your movie, this is the song that plays when you're dropping one single tear into a lake and you're sad. And then this is the song that plays when you're staring at your dead cat. And it's like, wait, what? Because then it was like the mood of your music, and mine was just like calmed and relaxed. And I was yeah. like, wait a second. You set me up to be that I was going to be a monster this year. What are you doing to me, Spotify? And as many people have pointed out, you know, as I do every year, I feel like it happened more this year. I hate the celebration of the service that doesn't pay well. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's great as a music fan, but oh my God, it's such a bummer as an artist to see all these people listen to my stuff and I got paid what? Oh, God. <laughs> I have a dollar seventy-seven sitting in my distro kit, Brian. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing quite fine. Thank you. Those streams are adding up. <laughs> yeah. Why don't other digital services do their unwrapped for the year? It'd be such a smart marketing move and yeah. nobody yeah. else does it. And it would be such a roast too. Yeah. Right. You don't want to see the YouTube unwrapped for what holes you've been going down. Yeah. <laughs> Bad news Terrifying. for everyone. I'm scared in one night looking at what they're suggesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the YouTube recommendeds are such a special hell. Let's go look right now and see what pops up and just be honest about what it is. Oh, I actually love this as a segment. Let's do this. Yeah. Okay. So the first track I get is the trailer for Reacher. I get Don Draper's coolest quote. <laughs> Cool. Well, what's Don Draper's coolest quote? I don't know. Oh, it's a series. Is that what this is? Reacher is a new Amazon series, I guess, based on on Jack Reacher. Mm. I loved the first Jack Reacher with Tom Cruise. That was fucking awesome. And Herzog. Oh, Herzog oh, man, the best as the bad guy in that. Yeah, and I am as creepy as they come. <laughs> Especially because, as many people have pointed out. Those Jack Reacher books are amazing because he is the exact opposite of everything Tom Cruise is. It's like they go out of their way to explain that he is not anything like Tom Cruise. It's like his hands were like giant hams. (laughs) His body was like a tree trunk. Like, and he was as tall as a seven story building and his teeth were not lined up right in the middle of his face. (laughs) And he runs with his arms out in the least aerodynamic way possible. And if he breaks his leg during a shoot, he actually stops because he's not a maniac. Like he realizes he broke his fucking leg. What are you doing still running? My first video is technical issue during ginger performance at Alcatraz. (laughs) (laughs) My top one is true crime losers Chris Watts versus Scott Peterson, because I've been watching so many Chris Watts videos. Do you guys know who that is? No, it's Chris Watts. Chris Watts is like basically, oh God, I'm saying this to people with kids. He killed his two children and his pregnant wife. And then Mm. there's like his entire interrogation where he's lying about it on YouTube. He's young, too. He's in his mid-30s. Yeah, it is a horrifying case, but he is such a pathetic piece of shit that it is really fun to watch people roast him because he's just like, honestly, if anything happened to those kids, like, you motherfucker. Leighton, have you ever read The Adversary? No. What's that? By Emmanuel Carrere. No. It's like a true crime book. I feel like no one ever talks about it. It's like one of my wife's like favorite books on mine as well. Emmanuel Kerr was an amazing writer who also wrote a book about Philip K. Dick, which is pretty awesome. I think he wrote I Am Alive and You Are All Dead or whatever the opposite title would be for Philip K. Dick because of his <laughs> psychosis. But basically, the adversary is about like he was a Dutch guy 
but like he was like in medical school and he missed one of his final tests. So he didn't pass to be a doctor, but then he just kind of lied and said he did. And then his entire life was about that. Like he made up a job that he worked for the equivalent of like the CDC and it's all real. And like, and he spent all of his life, like he would go to his job and he would go to rest stops and get paperwork to fake that he had this job and did it for like 20, 30 years until he got found out, like, and thought it was going to all fall apart. It's an unbelievable book. It's like a great insight in kind of like a therapy way of like, you know, the human ability to lie to themselves. Like he doesn't seem to understand that he shouldn't be constantly investing his parents' money into all of these European deals he knows about. And it's amazing that it went on for so long, but it's one that I feel like gets a little bit lost in the shuffle, but I just feel like you might enjoy it. That's perfect. I've been scraping the bottom of the barrel, not even with true crime books where I'm constantly looking up like, true crime book, best true sure. crime book. It's like, oh fuck, I read all of these. Um, right. So that's perfect. And then I start going down the hill of like, all right, what's the shitty like checkout line at Walmart ones? Fine, mm-hmm. fine, I'll read it, whatever. So this is great. A lot of unusual punctuation. Um, (laughs) What is this cover? That's the true crime. (laughs) You know what? I'll just run through a few more here. Number two is Mix, Nancy Sinatra. These boots are made for walking. Number three is PowerPoint SNL sketch. It really is like going over to somebody's house and just seeing what CD is in their CD player. Yeah. You know? Totally. And number four, just because it's different, is a stop motion video. It's this channel, Tomostein, that does basically changes food into Lego and makes the cool. Lego into like this stop. It's really fucking cool. My daughter loves them. And so they'll do this thing where they're like slice a piece of bread. And as the bread falls away, it'll turn into Legos. Ooh. It's very artfully done. And it, it's, it's extremely compelling. Yeah. Now do me this solid. Everyone yes. refresh your YouTube page. Oh, yeah. See what happens on that second shuffle, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know what? The basic structure is in place. Who is still Nancy Sinatra? Because I was just watching that video the other day. Now there's an SNL behind the scenes thing. Four is still food turning into Lego. That means you've been really watching a lot of those. If it holds out to (laughs) some of those. (laughs) My number one is another video about Chris Watts. (laughs) 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 It's fine. My brain's totally normal right now. Are you guys familiar with the YouTube channel Apator? No. Mm -mm. Okay. Because the other thing that came up is he posted a video called I'm Not Dead, I'm 57 Today, which probably has no significance for you guys, but he's... Absolute madman who all of his videos are he runs around oh, this in like guy. ice. Yeah, that guy. Yes, 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 yes. Just like drinking straight vodka, like driving his car on very thin ice or like submerging his body in freezing water. Like oh, yeah, this wild. Guy. Yeah. yeah, that guy. But he got diagnosed with cancer in the past year, and I guess he has not oh, no. posted. And so this video is him being like, Yeah, I'm alive. So this is exciting for me. That was my number <laughs> oh, <that's> four. <laughs> So a couple of days after we recorded this episode, uh, Tor Eckhoff, otherwise known as Ape Tor, died. Um, And it's just a huge bummer. Rest in peace, dude. You brought a lot of laughs and smiles to a lot of people. Um, Everyone at home, pour yourself a little shot glass of vodka for him. Nate, what was your refresh? 
They were the same, actually. Number two is grow healthy berries for free because I follow <laughs> gardening things. Uh-huh. Number three is Russian 15-year-old Valeva wins gold. This is figure skating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's some SNL. And then there's some Ryan Reynolds. I don't know what this one is. A <laughs> webinar on uh, the assessment of the COVID-19 crisis and our healthcare system's response. Pretty dull, guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but watching moments of sportsmanship is one of the things I do to feel my feelings. And gardening is one of the things I do to lower my blood pressure. And me, I watch drum cams of Mashuga playing Bleed. I, this is the 500th version I apparently watched. Mm-hmm. An SNL sketch, a turntable buying and upgrading tips for beginners from a <laughs> record store in Tennessee that I follow because he's constantly finding his holy grails and Mastodon at the Georgia Aquarium. And of course, a Paul Reed Smith doing a what's in my bag from Amoeba. It's the best. Which I like to open, look at the list before they tell me what they are, judge them quickly, <laughs> get out, <laughs> usually. <laughs> I additionally have codependent mother and daughter role play from a therapist channel that I follow. <laughs> I mean, yours is great, Layton. <laughs> I mean, yours is dead on. What therapy yeah. channel is it? Patrick Tehan, L-I-C-S-W. He does a lot of really good, like enmeshment and like narcissist parent like here's what it looks like when you're enmeshed and here's how it looks like when you set boundaries it's a really good channel even though i generally avoid like therapy youtube and then next is so i over lubed a 50 dollar keyboard <laughs> <laughs> been there done that better send that link around because i need to see that one <laughs> my brother had a good friend who Years ago, he was a uh, semi-professional climber, rock climber. Oh, wow. Ooh. I think he's still a climber, but sometimes to like make a little cash when he was short, he would go down to like Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco and bet people that he could solve a Rubik's Cube in under 60 seconds or something. And he could do it in one hand and he, you know, he'd be like, mess it up as much as you want. And, uh, you know, like, and he just knew the moves, right? And he was at our house one time and was like looking through our things and then was like, I'm going to lube up your... Rubik's Cube for you? <laughs> and I was like, what? And he was like, it's just pretty stiff. Like, yeah, let me just move it up for you. And he takes the whole thing apart and WD-40, like all the pieces, and then oh put it back God. together. Wow. Because that's a component of how you solve it fast. It has to move really That makes swift. sense. You got to lube that cube. <laughs> What's his brand of cube lube? Is the question. It's just WD-40? I was expecting just breaking it in half and spitting in it and then putting it back. <laughs> well, in a pinch. <laughs> There's all kinds of things you can use. Like a gross board star. <laughs> Don't like that. <laughs> Ew. No good. My brother definitely had the Rubik's Cube book. Oh, I definitely did. Yeah, that book sold more than Rubik's Cubes, I think. And I bet you it didn't say get a good cube lube in there. <laughs> I had the Rubik's Snake and the Rubik's Snake book. Did you guys have the Rubik's Snake? I did have the Rubik's Snake. I got the Rubik's Snake, and it was like, why did I get this thing? I can't do the cube. The snake was better than the cube because there was no right answer. The snake was just kind of like a, hey, try to design shit out of it. It's kind of like tangrams or something. I just Googled for shits and giggles cube lube. Exact same. And the first thing that came up. It's a sequel to the cube movie Yeah, series. cube five. <laughs> cube five cube lube. Yeah. That's how we get out. <laughs> <laughs> speedcubeshop.com and guess what they sell 
lube for Rubik's Cubes. Wow. But they're like fun colors too. Galaxy. And flavors, right? Cosmic lube sampler. (laughs) Does it feel like you're on the right website, everyone? (laughs) I had to double check. (laughs) Let's see. Adam and Eve. Okay, no, I'm on the wrong website. (laughs) Yep. I guess that's a common thing. I do remember just walking past a kid the other day in Glendale, and my main thought was, really moving that thing fucking fast. (laughs) (laughs) I was legitimately impressed by like a 10-year-old. When people do it, like the behind the back thing, that's the one that really blows my mind when they mess it up, look at it for two seconds, and then boom. But it is frustrating when they're that personality that's like they finish it and then like put it down. They just like stare at you. (laughs) Because they know they're the coolest guy in the room. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The real baller move is like just doing it and then hucking it as far as possible in the other direction. So you can't even see if you like actually got it together. Trust me, I solved it. Leighton, you didn't get close at all. You just threw it against a wall. Yeah, but it looked pretty cool. It looked awesome, but the red and the blue are so far away from each other. Well, it's broken now. Yeah. Who can tell? I didn't have the right lube. <laughs> Should we introduce the show, maybe? Yes, that sounds like a great idea. Everybody, this is Late Night with Brian Wecht. Over here, we have Leighton Gray. Yo, that's me. That one was Brian Wecht. Hi. Two mystery guests, both of you. Who are you? What are you doing here? You'll never know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sample my cube lube. (laughs) Hi, everyone. This is Nate Smith. Hi, everyone. This is Jeff Garlock. So happy to spend time with you guys again. We shared some time on our podcast, What's That From? AKA WTF, the only podcast that uses those initials. Yeah, just Google (laughs) WTF. I'm sure you'll find it. I wear glasses, so, you know, you'll know you're at the right place. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of overlap, I think, in the kind of things that we talk about. Absolutely. On your show and on our show. I almost commented on it as it was happening, and then I was like, be in the moment, bro. Just like be present. (laughs) Yeah, the therapy talk comes up a fair amount. And like just perspective, getting perspective on our own lives and sort of picking apart who we are and how we operate in a lot of ways. And that is buried in the context on our show. It's a podcast about comedy, basically. How do you describe your show? I mean, I know it's technically like in the comedy category, right? I don't. I say that stupid podcast. I do. <laughs> <laughs> and then your therapist goes, you have to stop saying it like that, but we'll work on that next time. Here's a YouTube video for you to look at. If I have to describe it to people, I just say it's loose, long form conversations with digital creators. That's ah. what I say. Fair. So not the Carl of no scarred of podcasts like we sometimes <laughs> describe our podcasts. Oh, if, if we want to talk about now scarred, I don't know if we talked about this last time. I read all six cover to cover. Whoa. I've done four and I think I might need to go back and start again because I'm reading his new sci-fi book right now. Oh, I'm very, very curious about it. Yeah. Let me tell you, six, when it gets to the very, very long essay on Hitler. It's a bit of a slot. And by very long, I mean 500 pages out of whatever, you know, 1,200 that that book is. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Even watching the Get Out or whatever, that Beatles documentary, I'm like, this is the Carl Loaf now start of documentaries. <laughs> like, it's just watching them eat. He either just came or is about to come to Skylight or Book Soup or something. Oh, he was going to be in town or maybe we already missed it. 
do we have a date, bro? (laughs) (laughs) He's like walking character. Like every, his beard, his hair, his clothing, his skin, the wrinkles. He either smells really good or really musty. (laughs) Yes. You know? Yeah. You look at him in those author photos. This dude's hot. I mean, he's straight Mm -hmm. up hot. And he just has a vibe that I love. And I love in his books... My favorite thing is is this grumpy Norwegian guy who's like these fucking Swedish assholes and their, you know, their <laughs> hipster bullshit culture just hates the Swedish. It's so great. Is there any picture where he's not holding a cigarette? Probably not. He smells like cigarettes. And if he said he was like in clan of Zymox for a couple shows, I would have just been <laughs> like, sure. I'm sure you were in 1986 or whatever. But I was going to say, Nate, when you were talking before, I do feel not just in the topics of our shows, a kinship, but also the looseness of it, which we both have the same, like just start rolling and whatever happens happens and don't go in with the plan. Like we do have a couple segments on the show that we do, but those can be fast or slow or, or absolutely fucking interminable. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Even the segments themselves. That's exactly what I appreciate. I think about both of you is that like, the segments can be like fun and for want of a better word, trivial. Yeah. But also can be like, oh no, we're reflecting sort of philosophically on something in our lives. And the willingness to go there without being self-conscious about it is, I live for that. Well, thanks. It's why not, you know, like, especially in the podcast form where it's like, you don't have to like really hit a target. Right. I mean, joking aside about WTF, it's what made that podcast so special, right? Like it was like the willingness of him and his guests to go there in his conversation. And it felt like, oh, I've never really heard anything like that. It's the freshest thing ever. Yeah, especially in those early days when he was basically atoning for his assholery towards other comics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the first, whatever, 100, 200 episodes, almost every episode was like, okay, so what did I do to you? Yeah, it was. (laughs) It was. So should we talk about that? <laughs> should we just patch things up? <laughs> yeah, let's get into it. I feel like that was one of the bonders we had, Nate, early on, was like realizing that we were getting maybe something different out of those early WTF Oh hell yeah. episodes. That Bob Odenkirk one was one that stuck out. It's like crazy to say now, because it's just like, that's what a lot of podcasts are. But it was like, oh, we get a real conversation mm-hmm. where I see like this guy who's a comedic hero. I always talk about the moment when he's just like, but you've got kids, right? That must like help. And he goes, eh. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he was just like, at the end of the night, it's still me sitting on the couch. So I got to figure out what the hell's going on with me. And right. I was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for in my life. How old would Odin Kirk have been when he did that interview? My question is, am I older than he was at the time? That's always a depressing question. Why would you want to pose that to yourself? <laughs> now it's like every movie. It's like the City Slickers predicament yeah. where you're just like, how young is Billy Crystal oh, in City Slickers? What is going on? I'm like six years older than this motherfucker. Dude, just watch <laughs> any NBA game. You know, like, you're like, they're all 24. Yeah, I'm sorry, Nate. You'll never be in the NBA. No, I never will. <laughs> we get it. All of you are old. Yeah. You're gonna- and you'll have that shift. I brought my kid to the Natural History Museum, mm-hmm. and it was the first time we had gone, but we picked... The wrong day is still semi-new Californians, Mm -hmm. and it was the day of a USC versus UCLA game. I've made exactly that mistake, and it fucking 
sucks. When you have to take that right to go down that street and it's closed off and the Google Maps jumps from one minute to 20 minutes because you have to get around all of the alumni. And if you go into the underground parking lot and then you have to drive through all the like tailgating stuff that's happening around the stadium. Yes, I did that once like the second year we were here. And then I was like, I'm never going to the Natural History Museum again without checking if there's a home game because it's awful. It happened a couple of years ago, but seeing all the like college students walk around felt like such an old man oh in God. the way of being like, you're all children. Yep. What are you doing? Like you're all wearing crop tops and carrying 24 packs of Natty Lights. Like this isn't <laughs> good. I think a lot about all the cool professors that I had when I was in college. I am way older than they were at the time, yeah. for sure. They were like 35 or something. So I'm like 10 years older than, than they were. You always think those like TAs that are teaching your film classes are like a billion years old. Hmm. And then you go to the Greenpoint Library and you see that same TA looking at a book that I swear was the dummy's guide of how to make a movie. <laughs> I was just like, oh, no, my BU fucking uh, education was pointless. And then the other TA, not to like besmirch this job, was working at the Barnes and Noble at Union Square. Yeah. And I was like, we're in the same exact position. But at the time, I was like, I got to I got to take in their opinions on how Hartley. Like, yep. it really, it makes sense what they're saying about the passion of Joan of Arc. Well, because you're like, that is success. That person right there, they've got it. I want it. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. They are in the film biz. Yeah. <laughs> and ultimately, that's so much more about how you want people to be and like these manufactured power dynamics that so much of our interactions with other people and what we assume about other people when we're going off of very limited information, like, oh, I only see this person in this one context. I'm going to extrapolate this. But like, you know, you're projecting traits that you want or that you feel a lack onto others. And then everything's always about you, even if you don't know that it's about you. Yeah. When I saw that TA, I was like, oh, no, my career. <laughs> like, I wasn't caring about his. Like, I right. was just like, oh, good. I need that yeah. book. Give me that book. There's only one of them here. <laughs> Let me get the large print Polish version. <laughs> in science, you know, you had these TAs, especially as an undergraduate and then as like a beginning grad student, you see these people ahead of you. And there it's not about the arts where they got the movie made or whatever. There it really is like they understand something. They get it. There's just some way that their brain is functioning that I'm trying to get my brain into. And when you see these people operating at such a high level, and it's not about monetary success or anything like that, you can see there's some invisible boundary between you where they understand it in a way you don't. And you'll do anything to try to get up to that level. I would buy textbooks. I would go like scouring for cheap textbooks, because textbooks are fucking 100 bucks each. But if you can get them on sale, I can't even tell you how many like particle physics textbooks I bought trying to be like, is this the one that'll unlock it and then shift my brain into high gear? And of course, it doesn't happen. It's just accumulation over time of thinking that way. When I was teaching sketch, and I'm sure Nate is still at times teaching sketch, there was always the moment at the end when like the students wanted to know you had a Q&A or I would always have, and there inevitably would be at least one, if not 20 people would just be like, so is um, is there like a book? <laughs> I can, like a sketchbook? What's the good sketchbook? 
Can I get a book? Can you give me the answers? Can I get an answer? Do you have Lauren's contact? Can I get Lauren's contact <laughs> in that book? Especially what it would like kind of boil down to. And I always felt like, look, I'm already stressing of imposter syndrome every time I was teaching anyways, because I would have the thoughts of these TAs, I think, and being like, I got to give you your money's worth. Right, uh, right. Sometimes these notes are great. And sometimes I'm just giving notes. But it would be a bummer because it's just like continuing to have a growth versus a fixed mindset and that you have a growth mindset towards learning and that you are constantly bringing in and kind of like re-upping the level. That's right. We all want it to be like a platform game. It's just like there are eight levels and I finished it and uh, Bowser's done. Yeah. So we can move <laughs> on, right? right? And it's like, sadly, no, there's just a billion levels and Bowser just keeps coming back. I think the really hard thing to teach younger people is just that most of creation is failure. And mm -hmm. 99% of what you do isn't going to work, or at the very least, isn't going to work right away. And probably more than half of it is just going to end up on the floor somewhere. But yeah. trying to get it into people's heads that it's not right and wrong, you're not just going to do it right the first time, although that will happen occasionally. But you just have to get used to repeating the same mistakes over and over and failing and then getting a little better. That was the hardest thing for me in science is just most ideas are either a, impossible, or B, wrong, and you're going to have your friends tell you that the thing you thought was right is wrong, and that's just the way it works, and get used to it. I mean, it's a human deficiency that we see in our world now anyway, where it's just like, what do you mean you told us one thing about coronavirus, and then it changed right, right. six months later, and it's just like, that's literally how <laughs> everything goes. I mean, you should be saying that about yourself. Like, you should be changing and being different than six months ago. Yeah. Recently, me and my wife were talking about our different careers and, like, also kind of, like, how we have to kind of approach our lives. You know, she has a real career. She's like, if we're going off the metaphor of hiking, I know when my life I need to just figure out, like, okay, this is my path. If I'm hiking in the mountains of L.A., I'm going to go on this path. It's just, do I run? Do I like trail run or do I take a nice walk? Do I look at the birds? Like, do I run a little and climb here? But I know what path I'm going on. She's like, your life seems to be like, and it's always been this way. You're out in the woods and there's like 20 different paths. Yeah. And you're just like, all right, I guess I'm going to try this one for a little while. And you go down that path and you're like, nope, that was a dead end. Uh, I guess I'm going to go back. Oh, I'm going to go into this one. I'm in a ditch now. <laughs> ah, fuck, I'm drowning in a ditch. There's water in it. I better crawl out. I'm being pursued by a wolf. Shit. Yeah, now there's a wolf. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I have to give that wolf 10%. And then I'm going to go over to here. And, but it's just like a cycle. Even that, though, is like just kind of the game. Like having a constant kind of moving mind to right. be able to be like, all right, I can, you know, learn to dodge the punches. Learn to love the rope, as Nate has heard a billion times. All that. And, and the hard thing is, in science... You have the idea, you do the thing, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but it's in your hands. In entertainment, you do the thing, and at least if you're operating at a certain scale, it's out of your hands, and you might have done your job fucking 100% A+, and the thing can still completely fail. We've all been there. It's the worst and also unavoidable. Yeah. The successes and the failures when you worked, you worked as a physicist, right? Yeah. Knowing both worlds, the creative world and this world, do the failures, I mean, forgive me for asking you to assess your failures. No, 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 please, please, please. Do they feel the same? I think they're very closely 
correlated, honestly. The big difference is that in science, there's a right and a wrong, and that just doesn't exist in the arts. There's like, people will like it or they don't. In science, there's an objective standard that you're held to. But honestly, my life as a musician, comedian, artist, whatever, is essentially, it feels mostly the same as my life as a scientist, only I have less job stability now than I did as a professor. You don't get entertainment tenure? <laughs> you didn't, you weren't told about that? Yeah. Hmm, oh God. Weird. Guess you're fucked. Uh-huh. Yes, I'm fucked. <laughs> the frustrating thing about science is in the arts, you can always do a thing. Like you want to do something. Okay. You can write it. You can figure out a way to make it happen. In science, you might come up with a problem that there's just like no real solution to. You can ask a question that's a perfectly well-posed question about whatever. I'm not even going to come up with an example, but it might just be too hard. It might be that it's too hard right now. And in a hundred years, it'll be easy. Well, here's the real mindfuck. Sometimes in pure mathematics, due to something called Gödel's theorem, turns out some questions are literally just unanswerable and are neither true nor false. That's a whole other thing. But in science, you pose these questions and you can work on them sometimes for a really long time and make progress. And then you just can't get it over the finish line because of whatever reason. And maybe I had drafts of paper. We were about to hit publish. And then someone realized something and we were like, Oh, well, rip, yep, done. I worked on something for a year once with three other people, typed up this beautiful paper. It looks like a science paper. It's got graphs. It's got equations. It's, it's got a little rainbow in the corner. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it says nine <laughs> theorems. Uh, and someone was like, hey, can we say this? We were saying making some statement. And it doesn't seem like that's well justified. It was the point of the paper. And we were all like, yeah, I guess not. Well, can't put it out by paper. And man, it's part of the process. There's nothing you can do about it. And what distinguishes the high profile, you know, Ivy League, Harvard scientists or whatever, is this amazing ability to find this sweet spot of problems that are both tractable but interesting. Because mm-hmm. anyone can start churning out fucking boring calculations that are it's like this much new knowledge about whatever it takes the really interesting and talented person who has a sixth sense for, Hey, I think we could do this. And that's actually really cool. You need the Zizak of physics. <laughs> that's, that's Oh God. Yes. <laughs> the thing I find about the physicist. <laughs> He's just like, you're just like, yeah, I think you're bullshit, but this is so charming. Yeah. I mean, those guys, those guys definitely exist in physics, only they're not complete bullshit artists is the difference. Right. But there was a guy at Harvard, it was a famous professor there, Strominger, who just on his blackboard just had a list of problems. And these would sometimes take months, years, whatever to solve. Cross it off. Move on to the next. Hmm. And Matt Damon showed up. Yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> Solved them all. Erased and them like, all. like, fuck yeah. this guy. <laughs> <laughs> he erased them and he said, I'm a janitor. <laughs> to answer your original question, Nate, the failures emotionally feel the same. Honestly, the big emotional difference between being a scientist and being an artist is that I would show up for work as a scientist and I would have some of my closest friends. I'd be like, hey, here's this idea. And rather than people be like, well, I don't really like that or I don't like that. These guys would be like, are you fucking stupid? This is just wrong. Like, <laughs> what are you thinking? And I'm uh, saying, well, objectively, 
I am wrong. And this thing I spent three hours calculating is bullshit for, mm -hmm. by the way, a very obvious reason that had I paused for 30 seconds at the beginning to think about, I would have just realized that it couldn't possibly have worked. And that's emotionally a different thing than being able to push back. By the way, you can argue, of course, and you can try to stand up for your point of view, but ultimately you're right or you're wrong. And that's a big difference. I was going to say, though, I felt like I've met some of those personalities at UCB. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, no, no, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On the like art side of it, where, you know, the variety of different disciplines you hit is a creative, it really all hinges on how good are you at bullshitting? I describe what I do as scamming in general because it truly is like, all right, I'm going to get this idea. Whatever I do, like I just need to polish it up and sell it. Like all writing is bullshit. All art is bullshitting. Like that's just truly the lens through which I see it. And there's no right or wrong answer in the bullshitting. And then it comes back around on me of like, am I just simply not a good enough bullshitter to make this happen? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so here's me with my little charlatan hat on hiding in the corner being like, Oh, you want to do a three-card Monty kid? Come on in. I've, I've written this. <laughs> just recently, like, I, like, submitted something for, like, a project, and I was just like, all right, just waiting for those notes, and then, like, got an email. which was just like, hey, just want to give you a heads up that there's no notes. It was awesome. Oh, and then nice. my gut reaction was just like, are you, wait, what? Did I, <laughs> did you read the right, did I send the right thing? I think I tricked them. Did I trick them? Okay, don't say anything, Jeff. Just back away slowly. Yeah. Don't make eye contact with your email. That's right. <laughs> oh, man, but the note being no notes in certain contexts is just like gutting. Like, yes. What, what am I supposed to do? How do I improve? Yeah, exactly. There is that sometimes where you're just like, I'm not perfect. Like, this was not a great How else story. am I going to have fuel to feel bad about myself? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, something else that occurs to me to answer your question another way, Nate, is as a similarity between science and the arts is that you put something out in both and you kind of have a gut of like, people are going to care, people aren't going to care, but you don't know and you don't really know. And you can spend all this time working on something and think this is going to hit. And then people just like, don't even acknowledge it came out. I was thinking like, it's probably the reason that we get along. We all collectively recognize the, the unpredictability of our careers and our life, whatever. And in the face of that, it's sort of like, well, then I got to make sense of it somehow. And if I could do it in a way that can remove a little bit of the pain, then that would be a bonus and right. recognizing the unpredictability and the chaos of it is part of the way that I can remove the pain because then I can be like, Oh, well, there's so much that's not in my control. What is in my control is my perspective on it and my perspective on myself. And therefore I can see failures as disappointment, but not as catastrophe. Yeah. Something that we all recognize a little bit we all sort of consciously or unconsciously participate in a mythology. It's something that Jeff and I think about all the time. If we were to accomplish X, Y, or Z, then we'll start to feel good. You know, mm -hmm. it's very American too. It's not necessarily global, but yeah. it is very much like not to pick on you, but like I'll do a meditation retreat for a weekend and like things will be better. <laughs> like I'm not saying that's your perspective, yeah. but it is our perspective. Like that's why we have those things. Yeah. Weekend, everything's better instead of like, oh, it's a lifelong journey that will take forever. Yeah. It's what the entire self-help, but like Instagram right. world is like feeding on that also has the Venn diagram overlap with right wing 
fucking conspiracy right. theory. My wife said the other day, and then neither of us did it. She was like, it's like, I know that the key to like something like meditation working is that I have to do it when I don't need to do it. But I'm like, oh, I'm freaking out. I should meditate. And then I'm like, that worked. Guess I'm done. Yep. Like, <laughs> it's like, well, no. I mean, I think you just have to find a way to establish a practice yeah. for yourself yeah. if that does consistently help so that you have quicker reaction time, et cetera. Like, because... There's no Bowser. There's no final Bowser except just Death Bowser. Death Bowser. Death, welcome to Death <laughs> Bowser. Put that on the tombstone. <laughs> Bowser finally beat me. <laughs> Brian, as much as I hate to say it, I think you need to introduce your favorite segment. All right. So we are going to move on to our first segment. This is our pop culture recommendation segment. You get to talk about, even though we've been doing this for literally the entire show, a piece of pop culture, uh, book, movie, video game, music, whatever it is that you like. The segment is called What's Poppin'? And the theme song goes right here. What's Poppin'? What's Poppin'? Okay, great. That's the introduction of What's Poppin', like we do every week on this show. I'm very interested to see if Nate has the same one I do. If there's one on there that you're like, I bet you Garlock might have picked this too. I just want you to tell me. <laughs> No, 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 no. <laughs> Trust me, we're mind melded. I can guarantee it. So I'm going to start. It's going to be a great lead in for you, Jeff, to take it away. I'm going to suggest a podcast called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. I knew that it would actually be a connection. We spend too much time talking. <laughs> so this rock writer, Rob Harvella, has a podcast. There's probably only a few episodes left of the 60 that he's doing. It's deep dives into songs that compose the 90s. It's a decade that only upon reflection, I realized how kind of notable it was in the music industry. It was sort of the last decade when MTV was relevant. It mm -hmm. was a decade that Jeff will get into it when he talks about his podcast. Um, WTF. So WTF is a podcast <laughs> that I think. <laughs> Nielsen started tracking data on records sold by like actually scanning barcodes as opposed to just hearing from record store owners. Oh, really? Yeah. So they started getting real Whoa. data. They didn't do that till the 90s? Mm -hmm. I think it was 1990. It was the first year. Oh, my God. And then in addition, it was the move from R&B, moved from like classic crooner Luther Vandross R&B to like yeah. Jodeci. You know, like mm -hmm. instead of not talking <laughs> about relationships, they're talking about fucking now, you know, and hip hop went mainstream and rock went from hair metal to grunge. So it was like a huge decade for a shift in, in music. Plus it was like new voices, new artists, new types of musicians became popular. So they just did a Radiohead episode on Creep. Nice. Oh, nice. You learn new things about artists that you didn't know and you reflect on things that were important about who that musician is. I mean, I've been deeply moved by episodes. The episode on Hunger Strike, the Temple of the Dog song is is really moving because there's all these bands and they trafficked in self-loathing and they sang about their experiences and there's only one singer left. Eddie Vedder is the last man standing. That is true. I never considered that. That is total craziness. It's very sad that they weren't bullshitting. And they're kind of singing about their dead friends. <laughs> and they're singing about the turmoil of having success and how much they're at odds with their own lives. And it was really moving and there was just a DMX episode. I mean, a lot of them are heartbreaking and then a lot of them are fun and goofy and cool to listen to. And 
and they shape the way we think about music and you don't even recognize it. Like the Brandy Monica episode is that you're like, oh yeah, I forgot <laughs> that Brandy had like 10 platinum albums. Huge, huge. So it's just cool to reflect on. And then the other thing about it that's cool, my friend's Tori Stan, I got to give him a shout out. He's the one that recommended it to me. It's led to other podcasts that are really great because he'll have guests on that do other podcasts and it's part of the ringer too. So they have access to all the music on Spotify and they can play those songs. And I'll give it up for another music podcast called Black Girl Songbook. That's like a very similar thing of like deep dives into musicians. The Rihanna episode I've listened to like multiple times. Speaking of Rihanna, I don't know if you guys saw that Barbados became an independent republic, independent of Britain, like two days ago. Oh, wow. And, you know, Rihanna is a Barbadian, I think is how you say it. Mm -hmm. Um, She's from Barbados. And there's a new president and prime minister, first ever. They're both women. And they had Rihanna come and declared her a national hero. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) If you haven't seen Rihanna on stage in Barbados. That's like my recommendation. It's this podcast, 60 songs that explain the nineties mm-hmm. and go look at Rihanna's dress. Cause she looks awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh. Look at her. Doesn't she look great? You see her and you're like, yeah, Magic. you're a queen. That's how they said they were like, we hope you continue to shine bright like a diamond and <laughs> be the queen that you are. And it was like, man, there's few women who I'd be like, you are a fucking queen. Yeah. Wow. So that's me. And then I throw to Jeff to, for the follow-up. Thank you for the for the setup. I wanted at one point to be like, oh, I recommend rewatching Silent Night, Deadly Night. I mentioned it before, but I rewatched it last night. I think it's a kind of pretty amazing movie that is like every other scene. You're like, how is this complete trash? And then how is it kind of beautiful? But more so, if you haven't watched Silent Night, Deadly Night in a while, as I think pointed out by Paul Rust on their episode with Gorley and Rust, a podcast we talk about all the time, why would they not use probably royalty-free Christmas music, but instead wrote 10 original songs <laughs> that seem to have no rhyme and meter? They are wild songs, and I need the soundtrack. I was almost going to be like, I kind of hate it, but everyone should read the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood novelization. Is it good? It is so wild and interesting to me. It's a movie I didn't really like. No, me neither. And it both is Tarantino at his most human, where because you actually get more of the backstory, you actually get into like, oh, okay, that's why Rick Dalton's acting this way. He gets more into the concept of like, hey, uh, all of these actors were in World War II and the Korean War. Like, they're all alcoholics with PTSD. That's one of the reasons they're fucked up. And it all, like, kind of has more pathos to it. And then at the same time, you're like, you wrote this during quarantine because you're crazy. Like, (laughs) they got rid of, spoiler, almost all of the Manson stuff. Really? Yeah. And so to the point where you're like, why did you leave in the little bit that you had? My biggest problem with the movie being this is your revisionist history trilogy. Did he recognize that shit is stupid and he got rid of it? But then also he has two times where he uses his own name. (laughs) Again, spoiler, the little girl He'd let you know, no, it's not based on Jodie Foster. It is based on the actress from Ordinary People, and she's having a baby. And he says at some point she was nominated for Best Actress in a Quentin Tarantino movie. So he makes up that. And then later talks about a guitar player who wants to get an autograph for his child 
from Rick Dalton, and he's like, his name is Quint. It's short for Quentin. And you're like, you just did this. It is a wild book. He moves everything around. It's kind of interesting to read. But those aren't my recommendations. My recommendation, going off of Nate, the podcast Waiting for Impact by Dave Holmes. It is such a wildly great and impressive podcast. And to be lofty, I'm like, oh, right. There is something great that can be done in this form. It's essentially Dave Holmes. He's the best. Every time I hear him on something, I'm like, I love this guy even more. Not only is he brilliant, he's just so compelling. Yeah. The conceit of the podcast is the Boys to Men Motown Philly video. <laughs> that was supposed to be like the beginning of the Belle Biv DeVoe empire, the East Coast family. And in that video, they show all the important bands, Boys to Men, ABC, BBD, the East Coast family, but there is also one band that why I was obsessed at first was because I already was obsessed with the fact that there's one white band called Sudden Impact mm-hmm. who show up pointing and they never put out anything after that. Hmm. And for years, I've been talking about Sudden Impact. I used to make jokes about it at UCB. <laughs> I used to put it up as fake press photos for my bands. Uh-huh. Like, it was just something in my brain. But the podcast is about how he's been obsessed with this. It's about the concept that he's obsessed with the minutia of pop culture and why is he obsessed with it. And he's trying to find Sudden Impact and to find him. And in my brain at first, I was like, okay, I like the topic. I like Dave Holmes. I'm kind of getting tired of... Here's a long produced podcast that's about a minuscule story, but mm-hmm. really we're finding out about ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Around especially episode three, I was like, this is a lot of the stuff that you guys talk about, a lot of the stuff we talk about, and is also kind of ends up being a perfect meditation on creativity, your kind of dreams maybe not turning out exactly how you imagined. The concept of failure, as we were just talking about, it gets into an episode and it was like, eerie because like an episode before in our podcast me and Nate had a very long discussion about like was that really a failure was it just a percentage of a failure did you actually achieve this and it's like you listen to it in real time with someone who says this album was a failure it didn't come out and it's like wait do you really see it as a failure and then the guy's like actually no and like my life isn't a failure and it's like watching a meditation on creativity and what it is to kind of be a human in a lot of ways, it really consistently now is blowing my mind. Like Hmm. every episode. And it's just also fun because in there is also peppered in a friend of Dave Holmes who's also maybe on that other podcast, but explaining the whole sound scan thing in an episode in there too, where (laughs) it was just like the idea that Michael Jackson was dethroned by Nirvana is not really true like it's kind of but not real like it's just like calendars are the answer and sound scan numbers but truly is like a podcast that you're like oh this is what i look for it is the conversation that needs to be had about failure and creativity it shouldn't be as beautiful as it is but it is and even the fact that i just vaguely talked about with another podcast person then dave holmes was like thank you guys like he was wow. just like Aww. just on Twitter. And it seems sincere. Of course, he's sincere. As he calls it, it's the Dave Holmes Passion Project. It's not really for anyone but him. I just subscribe to this. That's the best art. The self-indulgent shit. That's the other part too, is that it was a reminder of like the self-indulgent shit is the important shit. Trying to do something, fuck all that. Unless you need to, unless there's like a bill that needs to be paid, et cetera, et cetera. But like Yeah. It's going to be garbage, probably, or it's not going to hit the mark. And like this, 
is something that is so niche and so self-indulgent, yes, but is hitting the mark. Like I said, it sometimes happens with me and Nate. We'll be like talking about something and it like almost is like, what is going on that someone else is having the same conversation? The universality of specificity is Mm -hmm. very important. Yes. So yeah, it's a beautiful podcast. Everyone should listen. Great. What's popping for me is a book called Bind, Torture, Kill, The Inside Story of the Serial Killer Next Door (laughs) that is about BTK. I read so much true crime shit, and this book is written by all of the reporters who basically were on the case from the beginning to the time that he was caught. You really forget that he was just running nuts for 30 years and that people who were afraid of him as a child grew up to be on the police force that caught him. Oh, wow. I could not put this book down. I already knew like a good bit about BTK. And he really holds the crown for most annoying serial killer, like the one that I just want to beat the shit out of the most because God, fuck that guy. Not even just for his crimes, just because he's a little bitch. And like, I'm going to leave out a cereal box after I kill this entire family because it's like I'm a serial killer. Like, (laughs) eat shit. But like the police work and the dedication in this book and also just like how they did all this work and then the way that they caught him is because he's an idiot. And he was like, can you guys catch me if I send you a floppy disk? And they were like, what? No. And then they got him. (laughs) But reading that after I started reading Devil's Knot, which is about the West Memphis Three, right after I read this. And I was just like, oh God, the flip from like really excellent investigating to devil's knot which is just like you want to see cops fuck shit up real bad (laughs) i was like i can't i can't do this right now this is too much so yeah mind torture kill light summer reading i don't listen to the last podcast on the left that often but i feel like even the the btk one was like we sometimes try to find empathy with people but it's like this guy's the one that we're just like fuck (laughs) him like he just sucks they read his poems too because he leaves poems like so (laughs) self-indulgent There's no empathy that can be had. It's not like you're watching Jeremy Renner and Dahmer and being like, all right, I guess I feel for Dahmer in a weird way. (laughs) Wait, did Jeremy Renner play Dahmer? It's a surprisingly good movie. What? It was like before he was Jeremy Renner. And it was like a series of, they tried to do like an Ed Gein one, a Bundy one. But the Dahmer one was like, oh, good movie. (laughs) Brian, what's popping? And is it smooth jazz? It is not. And it's not even really smooth jazz adjacent, although maybe it is. So we have a little film club on the Late Night Discord, and there's a theme every month, and Leighton and I each recommend one movie every two weeks. This month's theme was adaptations, and I went back and watched Altman's Popeye, which is a 1980 (laughs) film based on Popeye the Sailor Man. And I probably watched this film 10 times as a child, retained basically nothing about it except isolated traumatic memories of things getting real fucky and a very scary octopus, which now looks like a giant rubber puppet. But the movie itself is not my recommendation, although it is worth watching. It is bananas. What I had forgotten was that it's a musical with songs by Harry Nilsson and they put out the demos of the Nilsson songs, like the original Nilsson demos. Our friend Jory just told me about this. And I went back and I listened to these Nilsson demos because the recordings of these numbers in the movie, most of them are terrible. Like you can't understand what people are saying. The levels are all off. Like there's clearly something there. And they sound real Nilsson-y if you know to listen for it. But when you listen to his demos, you can hear him talking to like Shelley Duvall and people. 
I was really taken with these. I thought they were really, really charming. And clearly they just were rolling tape while uh, they were recording these demos. Some of those songs are fucking great. And I had totally forgotten that He Needs Me from Punch Drunk Love was Olive Oil's song in this movie. I have been obsessed with that song. It's really simple and it's just great. So my recommendation is go listen to those Nielsen demos from the Popeye soundtrack because they're really charming and fun. And there was just like this unexpected gem that I was like, whoa, I can't believe this stuff. I love that not two days ago, I got to watch Jory recommend this to you. And now here we are. Now here we are. (laughs) I tried watching it in the past year and my wife was like, what is like, she could not fathom what we were dealing with. And yes, as a man who has hearing loss combined with Altman's floating audio style of recording. Yeah. And that every single character is going, hundred percent, like hundred percent. I don't know what is going on. And the subtitles are moving so quick. It is almost an impossible watch until the songs come. And then that song comes and you're like, Punch Drunk Love was a really good movie. I really loved Punch Drunk Love. <laughs> Not only are people talking, are people talking down here, and Robin Williams has a pipe in his mouth, so he's talking like this. There are loud, like, boink, fiber slap sound effects throughout the whole thing that are so far up in the mix that some of them are physically startling to listen to. Because you got pirates in the background at the same level, sometimes louder than in the foreground wimpy. 100%. And then you've got those like all the time. There's also, there's a whole song Olive Oil sings pretty much about Bluto's dick called He's Large. He's large. (laughs) So large. It's so weird. And you're like, Nilsson wrote this. Who was this for? (laughs) One of my goals is to go to Malta and see the Popeye Village. Yes. Still there, right? It's still there. Real quick, just to say it, I've recommended this on the show before, but I want to say it again, because Sondheim died Mm. this past week. If you guys have never seen the Pennebaker documentary of the recording of the original cast album of Company, it is unmissable. Everyone's drinking and smoking while they're recording this thing with the full orchestra. And Elaine Stritch is extra stritchy. And you get to see Harold Prince and Sondheim and everybody. It's such a period piece of 1970 plus these unbelievable performers and arrangements. It's real short too. It's just like an hour. It's worth watching, especially if you're a Sondheim fan. I guess it was lost for many years. It was like circulating on VHS tapes and it's on Criterion right now. Cool. What's very odd is I've wanted to see that. So I'm glad you reminded me. But also we're earlier talking about comfort watches And one of my comfort watches is like documentary now. Yes. And the other night I was like, I'm going to watch the company parody again. But it was the first time that I was like, I don't want to get into it. But all of Mulaney's stuff was making me feel like I don't really feel like dealing with it. Like I just feel too much like kind of empathy for the pain, like sort of thing. Yeah. It took away the comfortness. So I ended up going to the bowling one because I was like, I got to watch Tim (laughs) Robinson. (laughs) I needed something easy. In that documentary, the Stritch does The Ladies Who Lunch, which is like one of her signature songs. So they record it. She gives this like ball buster, barn bust, barn burner, not ball buster, barn burner of a performance. (laughs) Ball Uh, burning and busted. (laughs) (laughs) And she like crushes it. And then you cut back to the control room and sometimes like, I guess. Mm -hmm. And you're like, What? And then they make her do it like 20 more times. It gets upsetting 
And then she comes back the next day and that becomes the recorded version. But it's just like, how could anyone listen to this and be like, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> just astonishing. We will move on to our final segment, but I do love that for the Late Night Film Club, I really appreciate the setup of each of us recommending something along the theme because we've only done two so far, but I love how diametrically opposed our recommendations are because your choice for adaptations was Popeye and my choice for adaptations was Adaptation. I was going to ask. Yeah, and then for Halloween movies, you recommended Fright Night and then I was like, hello children, watch Possession. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so final segment. It's peaches and lemons. We each say three good, cool things, big, small, doesn't matter. And those are peaches. Then we do a lemon, which is a thing that's a mild bummer. And the theme song goes right here. Peaches and lemons. Peaches and lemons. All right. That was the theme song. We will each start with a lemon. I already said mine. Ants in a coffee maker. My favorite Tom Waits song. (laughs) Someone else go first. I'll say mine. We have some kind of agave type plant in our front yard. And recently, about two months ago, it started sprouting this giant asparagus like thing. It's like, I mean, it's big. It's like six inches in diameter. And we were like, holy shit, what's going on with this plant? It keeps getting bigger and bigger and it's blooming out the side. And we were like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's grown fast. And we're like, oh man, what a great plant. So glad we have this thing. And then we asked the gardener, like, what's going on with this plant? And he's like, yeah, it's dying. Mm -hmm. It's going to flower. Yeah. It's going to flower. And this is its last act before it passes on. I think you can top the flower off and it stays alive. I don't know. Oh, really? Mine keep doing it. I'm watching it. I think you'll be fine. We've had this plant for years. I mean, I guess it's just where it is in its life cycle. This is the end. <laughs> I think we're just going to gonna let it go and see what happens. It's like a little science experiment for our kid, too, so we can be like, oh, it's bigger now and it's doing this. But yeah, RIP plant. I just Googled it. You can keep it alive longer, but it is at the beginning of the end. Yeah. Oh, the inevitable march of agave time. Yeah. <laughs> is it an agave? Am I right? Is it an agave or is it something else? What you're describing is probably an agave. There's lots of different kinds of them. I mean, it's a big cactusy thing. They look prehistoric, kind of. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. My lemon is uh, snark. I'm working hard to eliminate it. Such a big part of comedy culture. And I feel like it's kind of nice to be a little more, I guess the inverse of it is would be like kindness and sensitivity. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm so used to sensitivity being a pejorative. (laughs) I'm going to encourage sensitivity and diminish snark. That's sort of where I'm at. Just something I've been thinking about. Whatever, snowflake. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I love that. My limit is just everyone having an opinion that's not really much of an opinion. Oh my God, yes. To some extent. I was like, oh, we're entering holiday season. We're going to enter the is die hard and holiday movie arguments that it's like, why bother? (sighs) Like, because if there's a joke connected to it or some sort of take, then maybe there's something there, you know, but also most of the time it's just like, nah, you're dumb. No, you're dumb. And I'm like, okay, why did my feed just get destroyed for two hours? Now we move past it. Sometimes you get that reminder of like, oh, right, we do this. Yeah. I would like to eliminate the we do this sometimes. I feel like in recent months, I've seen people refer to this as the discourse more and more. Yes. And I've seen people talk about dreading the discourse because it is because it's not a discourse. It's not a discourse. what we talked about when we talked about Halloween 2018. Yeah, where I was just like, if Leighton doesn't like it and I like it, 
that doesn't matter. Like we can have a longer conversation in human beingness, but like the discourse of someone being like, I know, yes, is not a discourse. So it's even a wrong term. It's the four discourses of the apocalypse. I'm logging off tonight. (laughs) Exactly. I was recently annoyed about this in specifically in the context of music by anyone who reviews an album after listening to it once. Yeah. We were like, no, shut up. Sit with this for a week or two and then come back and tell me what you think. But one listen is not going to tell you what you think about an album. It's just not. No. Nobody go listen to our review of Danny Elfman's. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Fair enough. Forget that we did that. But Wait, of what Danny Elfman item? The first Danny Elfman solo album in 30-whatever years that he put out. We did a live listen for the Patreon where we'd be like, okay, listen to this song and then we're going to come back and talk about it. And just the optimism that just goes straight to us, like having to keep in a bit of us going, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. When like he starts sampling Trump speeches, it's so fucking yeah. bad. Okay, we've done lemons. It's time for peaches. I'm going to run through mine. First peach, uh, I stepped outside last night and it was like, who ripped this fat vape in Silent Hill? It was so foggy. I could not see past my balcony. Very John Carpenter. What a vibe. Air was wet. Loved it. Second peach is, as I saw this fog, I happened to step outside of my apartment to walk my dog. And what do I find but a beautiful little possum that my dog had an encounter with from a safe distance. I'm so excited when I see a possum because I see them as an omen of good luck. And then my last peach is a couple of days ago, we recorded a very long episode with our good friend Jory, which is his third time being on the show. Not only was that fun as hell, yesterday, I listened to it once to give the notes, and then I listened to it again as I was laying down Mm. in bed, because I was like, (laughs) friendship, wow. And then I had dreams about you guys. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it was a great episode. All right, that's Peaches. Someone else. I got a Peaches. Peach it up, brah. (laughs) I made some pies for Thanksgiving, and they were... A plus. I bake a lot of <laughs> stuff, but these were like, mm, I fucking nailed it. And I am not gluten-free, but I made a gluten-free desserts for people at the party. And there's a flour called Better Batter that is exceptional gluten-free flour. Um, hmm. Just a special shout out to them. I mentioned it before. I'm really grateful for Libby, my Libby app. I do audiobooks all the time. Right now I'm listening to Bonfire of the Vanities, hmm. which I never read. It's read by Richard Dreyfuss, uh, for better or worse. Wow, that's intriguing to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've read the book, you know, there's a lot of diverse characters. So <laughs> he's doing a pretty good job with it. I've watched the movie Moon Over Parador, as I referred before. <laughs> I know what he can do with diverse voices. <laughs> then I'm grateful for my mental health care. We talked a little bit about it. There's a lot that I do. It's notable because like I was pretty bad at gratitude until I sort of employed a lot of what I do in my mental health regimen. And in fact, I used to like weaponize it and be like, ah, I'm fucking terrible at being grateful for things. And it gave me another reason to be mad at myself. And I sort of learned to actually just be grateful. And it's really helpful to even be grateful about little things like my audiobook app and my pies flower <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and a possum and stuff. So those are mine. Thanks for letting me share. That's great. Beautiful. I'm happy to go. Peach number one is another is actually a baking thing. My daughter and I made blueberry banana bread last night, and it wasn't that great, but we had a great time doing it. 
And in part because she got so enthusiastic about baking it that she started crazy mixing. And I think it overmixed, but who cares? Because that wasn't the point. We had some ripe bananas and I got to do a fun thing with my kid. And she spent the entire time, as she does with literally everything, just talking to herself about something in the Mario universe that she wouldn't share with me. So <laughs> it was a good time. Peach number two, Rachel and I were just talking about this. We lucked out. We have a block that has like the best neighbors ever. And everyone on our little street, there are lots of kids, some a little older than ours, some a little younger, and everyone's cool. Everyone's nice. Like we wave when we see him across the street. There's a four-year-old that lives across the street that Audrey has like kind of adopted as a surrogate little sister. And it is amazing to live in a place where you'd be like, okay, I actually know people and they're cool. I like them. Like we've hung out with these guys. It feels rare in this day and age to, I mean, we're not like best buds with everybody, but you know, we have everyone's phones and we text about neighborhood stuff. It's a nice little community that we just totally lucked into. So I'm thankful for that. And whenever we talk about possibility of some time moving, we're like, oh man, we could do that. And we just miss this, this little street full of cool people. And my final peach is that I went to a show last week. I went to see the band Planet Booty, who for Ninja Sex Party, they've been our first opener for some of our bigger shows. It's a Oakland-based trio that does essentially hip-hop and R&B songs mostly about fucking and body positivity. And they are great. I love their songwriting. They put on a killer show and they're good friends. And it was just nice to be at an event, see these guys that I haven't seen in a couple of years. The show is perhaps the most positive, life-affirming, self-affirming, everything-affirming experience you could have. I could not recommend these guys highly enough. So it was great to go to a show. And Rachel and I went to Musso and Frank's for dinner beforehand mm. for the first time in a couple of years, which is fun too. But it was a great night and yeah. it was good to see some friends. Jeff. Brian, these three peaches I've got might as well be yours. I okay. mean, tell me. Because numero uno, my first peach, I was just like, my wife, we're getting on our 20th anniversary, which oh, is yeah. crazy. Wow. And I truly am every day just like, I can't fathom that she supports so much of who I am. Like, I really can't fathom that, like, you know, this yeah. all makes sense to her, what I do. In my case, I'm like, you want to be around this because you know, <laughs> I like, yeah, okay, great. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like sitting there and I'm thinking, watching Silent Night, Deadly Night, that's like, oh, right. She was trying really hard to find when they made that like Christmas sweater that just said punish on it with the fucking arm coming out of the chimney with an axe because she will let me like she wouldn't stop. She finds it charming. Like that's great. She's the best. Second is my son. And I had the same thing last night where I was like, don't be aggressive dad and say stop stirring the avocado so freaking much you're getting it everywhere making guacamole last night but the kid's real funny lately and he keeps doing stuff where he's just like he told me that day he's like i'm just trying to make you laugh so he was just like chicken rat how's that like and i was like not bad like it works like you hear me laughing like you took an odd juxtaposition of animals but the kid is real funny and then he, he makes me better every single day. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and uh, the third one uh, is uh, metal and brutal music live. I went to my first show in two years uh, since the lockdown. I 
tried to go see my buddies in photo crime, my buddy Ryan. And then like I had family in town. So I honestly was like, I don't think mentally I could have done it. Like I'm just not there yet. And then I forced myself to go see my buddies in uniform with their new album. Shame is amazing. I was there and I was like getting teared up and I was like, yeah, I, brutal music is the most important thing ever to me. And I was watching and I was like, I don't miss touring, but I miss playing a mm-hmm. lot. Like, this has got to happen. I need to destroy people. I needed to do it because I'm going to see one of my favorite bands reunite, this band Dead Guy, in two weeks. It's nice to have that reminder of like, yeah, music is the really the best, not just yep. lip service. Like, it changes everything and it is uh, a lifeblood after all these years, after listening to brutal music since I was like 12, it yeah. still is the same thing. Especially live. Especially, Especially live. Especially live. And they've gotten, this band has gotten so much louder and I was just like, oh, great. Yes. It's the best. Awesome. Wonderful. I'm going to a live show tonight. Oh, what are you seeing? Ooh. I'm going to see Natalie Palomides's Imbruglia? We were just talking about her. Dude. Yeah. I'm going to see her first <laughs> show before Nate. It's called Laid. Is it the egg one? Yeah. Oh my God, dude, it's so good. I've never seen it. I'm really excited. We literally two days ago were talking talking about Nate Nate and egg. God, that's fucked up that we just talked about the weird podcast serendipity. She's pretty remarkable. I hope you have fun. It's a very, very fun show. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, that's our episode, folks. That was a fun one. Yeah, guys, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for being so generous with your time. So when I asked you yesterday if you wanted to be on the show, I didn't realize you guys had a new thing dropping today. Neither did we. Yeah. (laughs) What? We literally did not know when you first emailed us and then we made strong decisions. Yeah, we were talking, (laughs) recording episodes as we got your email and both of us were like, yeah, I could do it. You know, I love it. Yeah, we recorded a little offshoot of What's That From, primarily for our Patreon listeners, but we'll drop some free episodes because there are a few that we want everybody to hear. But we're just talking about the 10 to 1 slot on Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about all the current sketches and it sort of always becomes a reflection on Saturday Night Live and and what that slot is. Offbeat comedy. We're surprisingly keeping it tight. Yeah. (laughs) But by keeping it tight, it's the length of like what most normal podcasts are. Where can you find the podcast that you do with Mark Marin every week? Where can <laughs> listeners find you online? Like all that. All right, what the fuckers? Listen up. So listen. <laughs> <laughs> you can check out our Instagram a at at I forgot how you're supposed to say it. It's an A in a circle. A circle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at hey, what's that from? Go to any podcast venue, and you can find our podcast. What's that from? Those are really the primary uh, sources. And then we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash what's that from? Yeah. And your guys' show is legitimately one of my favorite podcasts. I love what you do. Literally every episode, as we've talked about, my buddy Andrew and I talk about your show constantly whenever a new episode comes out. So I'm so grateful for what you guys do and how much fun you are doing it. And I love, I was going to say this before, I love how season two had this real introspective turn and it was such a fun and compelling thing. I thought it was great. Thanks, man. Yeah, we didn't plan on it exactly. Well, that's what I love about <laughs> it. It's like, you could tell that this is like, well, this is just where the conversation's going. It's like, just like the constant development of our long friendship anyways, but just like, this is what we're going to be talking about sort of thing. Well, I guess Nate's fucking done.
Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Just as I was complimenting him. <laughs> While Nate's not here, I'm going to use this time to say, go check out my other podcast, The Canon Canon. We talk about <laughs> Canon films and also uh, Doc's Till Death. We go through punk documentaries and also 108.9 The Hawk, uh, the only <laughs> classic rock station in Valverde. It's a fake classic rock station. They're all fantastic. <laughs> oh, hey, Nate. Just hey. talking about what's that from uh, our podcast. Hello, Gardner <laughs> Crisis. But yeah, guys, your stuff is awesome. And, and thank you for doing it and for being here today. Thank, thank you for having us. This was awesome. While we were talking, I, I bought myself some more time on the thing that I have to deliver. So, hey, let's just keep it going. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Dear daycare, I'm not coming to get my son. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> Folks listening at home, hope you had a lovely time. Hope you're having a lovely week. Hope you're feeling uh, flirty, fun, and fresh. Hope you're feeling other things I say at the end of this show. Um still hope you're coming that's that's the end of the sh- uh, that is the end of the show question mark Good end of the podcast yes that's the Goodbye. end yes. <laughs> officially the end bye yes. the whole podcast that's it oh wow we're on the last episode did it yeah that's it last episode ever <laughs> bye yep uh kind of like lost i was a little disappointed at the end uh, but you know what are you gonna do Leighton night is produced by brian wecht Leighton gray and jarek centeno Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Knight, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Knight, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. <laughs>